Hello and welcome back to Working Man's Pod. Dave, we have a fun one today. We are about to send it to our interview with our first ever guest on the podcast, Zach Cropper of Rock Talk with Dr. Cropper. We recorded this over Zoom because all three of us are in different places, but we still wanted to connect. So with that, I hope that you will enjoy the show. Apparently it was because their uh, some drug charge wouldn't let them be over the border for more than a couple hours. So playing in Hamilton, they could stay in Buffalo, race across for the show, and drive back. That's hysterical. I've never heard that before. But I, um, we started recording a couple minutes before you got in, and I, I think we're just going to start on that anecdote because it's so fantastic. Um, first guest uh, in Working Man's Pod history, Zach Cropper, of the fantastic podcast rock talk with dr cropper fantastic title uh as well by the way i love the the rhyme scheme that it kind of has to it thank you uh i have to give credit to my dad for that one actually i i was initially like thinking music history with dr cropper and he's like no rock talk sounds way better like, you know what? true <laughs> <laughs> uh, but th- th- thank you for the praise i've uh, checked out a few of your guys episodes as well and i'm likewise a fan and honored to be your first guest oh thank you um so zach uh your show doesn't just cover the grateful dead but you do have a number of grateful dead episodes including the first uh i would say substantive episode you did one episode that was kind of an introduction to yourself and then episode two was about europe 72 which is what we're going to talk about today um and then basically anytime there is a new grateful dead live release you're on it so you have, you know, all of the Dave's picks, you come out with one, you did a three-part series in December about the Listen to the River Play box set, which was great. I think your most recent one was about the uh, 1969 release the, at- The Fillmore West run. Right. So I'm curious, I guess, just as a starting point, what inspired you to do that? Did you just pick that up recently on vinyl or something like that? The three-disc compilation from that box was one of the first releases I bought. And I erroneously just assumed like, well, the, the versions that were chosen for it or live dead must be like noticeably superior to the rest of it. So I never sought out the whole box. And then last year on the anniversaries of the shows, I listened to them all in full and thought like, Hey, I should talk about this, but the schedule was kind of full then. So I thought, Oh, I'll just do it next year. Oh, nice. Yeah. You do have a very full schedule. I mean, you, what kind of inspires you to talk about things when you do, because you do a lot of anniversary releases. Um, but then there are other things that you do that are just, I guess, more unexpected, not so linked to time and just cool things. Like you did a Taylor Swift one last year that I liked and some stuff like that. What, what kind of inspires you to do episodes when, when you choose to? Yeah. So I don't know how I, like how I ended up thinking to to listen to things on the anniversary i think it was probably when i first got into live zeppelin and joined the the forum on their official site a few people on there who seemed to have good opinions were always listening to stuff on the anniversary so i thought oh i guess that's just what you do and then now this get now that i'm into zeppelin and the dead listening live my schedule is so full that i pretty much only hear everything like once a year which is good because it prevents burnout you're always like excited to hear it again yeah, that makes sense, especially with both of those, I mean, fantastic and legendary bands. Dave and I are big fans of both. You have different years that you can go to 
for the different seasons too. So, you know, maybe I guess two years ago, it was Europe 72 in the spring, but maybe next year or this year you do 78 or 77 or something like that. And you get to hear uh, with the dead. Well, and with Zeppelin too. I mean, just like basically completely different repertoires uh, depending on the year. Yeah. And they, they scratch a, a pretty different itch zeppelin it's more just rawing you with or wowing you with the raw power and like everybody being a virtuoso and then the dead it's a bit more about the like the subtleties of the interplay i find which i think is one reason why i think audience tapes are more like frowned upon in deadhead circles um partly because deadheads are spoiled with the number of sound soundboards and like official releases but also i think a lot of the intricacies get masked over on audience tapes, whereas like a Zeppelin show, you're still going to get the gist of the power and stuff on an odd. Yeah. To the extent you can. Right. I mean, we, yeah, yeah we're getting it secondhand with Zeppelin because we couldn't be in the arena and feel like the, the energy that they're playing with. We can't hear the uh, hammer of the gods and feel it in our chest. Like they could in the arena. Well, I was just listening to, the Vancouver 75 show that's anniversary is today before we got on here and after cashmere, the tapers like, Oh geez, my gut, man. <laughs> yeah. That rules. <laughs> One of the funnier audience tapes actually, cause they, uh, they go for a bathroom break during Moby Dick and they bring the recorder with them. So you can just hear them like chatting about the show while they're <laughs> at the urinal. <laughs> I have never heard that. That's fantastic. I'll, se- I'll send you the link. Yeah, please do. So, okay. So that's, I mean, I guess we're kind of taking a circuitous route to this, but what's your background as a musician? Because I just recently re-listened to your episode about the other one and you did a kind of cool fill, like a buffer in between the different shows of you playing the drums. So I know that you at least play percussion. Um, do you play other instruments too? Uh, barely. I... I'm very mildly self-taught on piano. Uh, I like to mess around with my brother's uh, guitar just with a slide now and then. Uh, I've been trying to develop as a singer a bit like since the pandemic started, since I'm listening to so many shows, just like might as well sing along when no one's around. But definitely drums is my main thing. Um, I'll be 27 on the 31st and I've been playing for a little over 20 years, I guess, uh, when I was banging on pots and pans from like when I could crawl. My mom and I used to go to her best friend's parents' house a fair bit because he has like an awesome train set, like a whole village on multiple tables in his basement. And they were trains were kind of an equal obsession for me when I was little. So I watched that. And then uh, the mom would let me like drag out all the pans and bash away. And then I got a toy kit from my grandma for Christmas when I was four and then graduated to the full kit when I was eight and started taking lessons and then kind of drifted away from it the first couple of years of high school. But then uh, fortuitously, when we were having the basement finished, uh, I had to bring them my kit up to my bedroom for like a month or two. And that kind of got me back into it. And then I, that's when I actually like started to progress. I would say when I took it more seriously than, than uh, when I was younger taking lessons, I that's probably not an uncommon thing to take it for granted when you're little and like getting dragged out of class to go to lessons. Do you write the theme music to your podcast yourself? Uh, I created it in GarageBand. Nice. Just with like the free samples. (laughs) (laughs) 
that's that's really cool. The theme music sounds great. I would never have guessed that that was a Garage Band uh, production, but oh, thank thank you. Yeah, the Garage Band sound though. I mean, you can do a lot with it, so that makes that does make sense. I'm especially I'm especially fond of the congas in it, <laughs> but um, so I had a band for three years when I was like started when I was an undergrad, and then for a few years after that, uh, with my brother who's on the show a fair bit, he was the guitarist, and uh, then we sort of it ran its natural course and now I'm doing this. Nice. So one, one thing that's great about your show, um, not to just keep buttering your bread, but you have a great voice for podcasts. You know, I, not everyone has kind of that good, like timber that makes sense uh, on a podcast, but it sounds good. Have people told you that before? Thank you. Um, actually, yes. It's kind of a funny story. <laughs> um, so in between, while I was still doing the band thing between undergrad and grad school, I, I went back for public relations and corporate communications and was halfway through that when the pandemic started. So in, in those years in between, I was working at a local grocery store and I started on cash and then, uh, well, actually I started on carts because they said, Oh, we're going to put you on cash. I said, what I had interviewed for carts. I was like, uh, actually, can I do carts? Like, so I don't have to talk to anybody. And the manager looked at me like, uh, nobody has ever asked that, but okay. <laughs> and then after a few weeks, like, yeah, sorry, I don't care. We're moving you anyway. Um, and then I switched to the online shopping, but anyway, um, the assistant produce manager, we used to talk and he's a college football fan like me and like music. And, uh, randomly one day told me I had a good radio voice. I was like, Oh, thanks. I don't know what I'm supposed to do with that information. <laughs> well, I'm just, we're here working at a grocery store, but then uh, fast forward to May 2020 when the pandemic started, we had done a podcasting assignment back in the winter in my PR program. So I and I enjoyed it. And then one day I was I was out for a walk, actually listening to the first Paris show from this tour. And I ran into one of our, my parents were talking to the neighbor and he's like, oh, I think I'm going to order a mic and start a podcast. I was like, why haven't I thought of that? I just learned how to do that in school. So I like literally walked home, went on Amazon and ordered the mic. And uh, he still hasn't started a show <laughs> two years later, but here we are. <laughs> that is too funny. As an aside, I worked at grocery stores for about seven years of my life. I'm a little bit older than you. I'm 31. So I'd spent a lot of time. I started on carts, moved to the cash register. I worked in the bakery for a while. And especially in the job like bakery, produce, something like that, you have so much downtime to just shoot the shit with people that like that totally makes sense. Because all you're doing is like, whether you're stocking stuff, cleaning stuff, all you do is have time to just, you know, talk. <laughs> oh, yeah. And especially once I switched to the online shopping, because if it was a slow night, once I had everything shopped, like I'm just sitting there with the phone waiting for people to pick up so I can wander around anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. With carts, it's kind of the same thing. Cause you have your own freedom to just, I'm going to make my own schedule today. I'll get three carts now, four carts the next time and just kind of milk it for what it's worth. You get a real sore back, but you sure get your steps. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. People I ask, cause Alex has a blazing hot take about this do you like when people just leave their shopping cart at the other end of the parking lot so you have to walk a mile to go get it uh i'm gonna give you a bit of a cop boat answer uh depends on the weather if it's nice out his theory is that he enjoys the walk and he doesn't mind breaking up the monotony but as a trying to be a decent person i think it's a bad look to send your shopping cart out yeah i mean 
it doesn't bother me so much as the the guy picking it up but it, it does probably say something about them <laughs> doing it yeah i agree dave you're so right about this my my take has softened on this but i used to make a point of i would put my cart like somewhere safe and out of the way where it wasn't going to hit a car but I would leave it somewhere for the person to go get it because the things that they would make me do when I had no carts to pick up anymore were horrible, uh, you know, cleaning bathrooms, stuff like that. And I, so I was like, I'd way rather be outside with headphones on picking up carts. And if there's one at the end of the parking lot, I'm just going to walk more slowly to go get it. But now I've changed because number one, there weren't as many of those like cart corral things when I did it, where it's like so easy to just go five feet and put it there. Number one, but number two, I, you can't explain to someone who watches you leave your cart, like, Oh no, I used to have this job. This is not as much of a dick move as it seems. And so you just look kind of selfish. Someday and, you'll realize I'm helping you. <laughs> yeah. And like, uh, I just don't want to be, even if it's strangers viewed as an unkind person. <laughs> so yeah, Dave, my opinion has changed uh, since, since our grad school days, but yes, I appreciate <laughs> you asking a fellow former cart, cart person, uh, how they feel about it. <laughs> Back in my day, we didn't have corrals. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for real. <laughs> okay, let's let's get into some specifics about the dead and about uh, Europe 72, because I feel like I've maybe listened to maybe in the double digits of hours of you talking about Europe 72. So I have some good sense for uh, your feelings about it, but I would like to, to hear some of your thoughts and to share them with our fans. So when did you... I guess to back it up one step, when did you really become a fan of the Grateful Dead? Okay, so my my first memory of being like consciously aware of them was uh, reading the entry about them in the Rolling Stone Top 100 Artist issue that came out whenever, like 2011, 2012. Mm-hmm. I remember we were actually on a trip with my grandma down to see family in Connecticut and we had stopped in for the night along the way and I was reading it with my flashlight in the car and I thought oh it sounds kind of cool and then I tried twice unsuccessfully to to get on the bus I I think the first thing I tried was November 11th 73 Dark Star already into live zeppelin so i was like okay yeah i like long songs and like i've i'd read enough that that was like their dazed and confused kind of thing so oh, i'll just dive right in but it was too far in the deep end i was like are they still tuning up are they half asleep i was like where the hell are the lyrics like at least days do you get like a verse at the beginning so, and then, so i was like oh forget this and then at some point i also tried the cornell audience tape and I might have listened to the whole thing, but like kind of in the background and didn't really catch. And then a few years later, uh, my dad lived in Ohio at this point and we were driving down and stopped for a burger on the way and Touch of Grey was playing inside the burger place. And I asked him who it was and he said, Grateful Dead. I was like, oh yeah, those guys. I'm like, well, this is pretty good. Like, And then so when I got back like a few weeks later, I made more of a concerted effort and it finally clicked. I got into Uncle John's band, Ripple and Sugar Magnolia, and then tried Dark Star again. And 
that time it uh, it worked but it's funny because i've heard a lot of people say like you don't really find the dead music it finds you when you're ready and i guess that's kind of true but also i had the experience of like you know banging on the bus like hey let me in <laughs> it looks cool in there but it just didn't work <laughs> um, you did that and the driver sped off and was like no 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 not yet yeah <laughs> I'll, I'll be back i'll come back for you but not now <laughs> yeah literally so i uh go ahead well no i just think it's kind of interesting the 73 specifically as a as a drummer yourself it's interesting that you know obviously a, a legendary dark star and it is advanced listening. Like that's not where I would tell a friend of mine to go to the songs that you then got into is pretty much exactly the same as me, you know, American beauty. When I started getting into the dead, I heard those songs, uncle John's band and ripple the working man's dead and uh, American beauty songs. And it was just like, man, these guys are great. Um, but I, what I'm interested in in 73 is that it's single drummer dead, which is the same as Europe 72. And then I think that two drummer dead can be a little bit harder of an entry point in a lot of ways, just because it's more noisy and sometimes a little bit tougher to keep that rhythm uh, that, cause sometimes they break off from one another, you know? Yeah. The, uh, the term sneakery, like, like sneakers in a dryer. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I, I agree. Um, and I, I guess most of the, the stuff that I first, so the first thing I bought, once I finally got into them was ladies and gentlemen from Fillmore East 71, because it was the only release that had uncle John's sugar Meg's ripple and dark star. I was like, what is this? Like, <laughs> this is going to be terrible. Not everything has my favorite songs. Um, I've since got over that. And then I got uh Fillmore West 69, the comp and uh, sunshine daydream Dick's picks volume four. And then about a year later, I got the the second Wembley show here. But yeah, I agree. The, I mean, 77 is a, a decent entry point, I think, because it's kind of, um, and you guys, it was funny. I was listening to your episode about Dave's Fix 41, and we had the same observation about how it's like it's all solid, if maybe not quite spectacular. Like it's, it can almost be smooth to a fault that it doesn't like really pop like some other years. Yeah. I would actually tell our listeners they should listen to your episode because your anecdote about listening to it with your grandmother is like the perfect encapsulation. I was um, eating, I was eating dinner. My wife was out of town. And so I was eating by myself at some restaurant and I had headphones and I was listening to your, I was eating it chopped. So it's not like I was at some fancy restaurant. I was eating a salad and listening to your show. And you were telling me the anecdote about listening with your grandmother and her being like, this is pretty good. And you were like, so that's good. But at the same time, my grandma liked it. So take what you will from that. And I was literally laughing out loud thinking yeah. like, this is so perfect. Um, and just a great story. Well, and I, I know exactly what she was getting at. Cause I've played live Zeppelin with her before and she was like a good sport about it. And she could get, she could get into no quarter, but like, I think I played an audience tape that was like a little rough. So I th she was like, this is nice. It's not too crazy. I was like, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, that is too funny. But yeah, 77 is like, it's pristine. We had, a, we read a, a quote on that episode from our friend, Jim in Maryland, who said, it's like a supermodel ex-girlfriend where it's like practically perfect in every way, but sometimes you want the warts and all version. And with Europe 72, there are some warty, you know, kind of out there concerts. The one that we just talked about in our episode that we recorded yesterday that will come out before this one was, I think I told you this, the very first episode or the very first show of the tour. There's a yep. little bit less of that kind of chaotic energy there. 
Um, it seems like they're kind of loosening up a little bit. And then that second night at Wembley, the one that you said you, you bought as your third. Yeah. They really heat up and start to kind of, you know, loosen up a little bit and get a little bit more out there with the sound in it in a really good way. Yeah. And I know what you mean about the, the, the wordiness, uh, a great example of that, I think would be the Arhas show April 16th, which I, I mean, I think they were dosed for a lot of the shows on this tour, but that sounds like one where maybe they like start, they're tripping a little too hard. The uh, it's really interesting, but the it's kind of an upside down. The other one where they do a 16 minute jam, like loosely dancing around the theme, and then I think they at some like me and my uncle is sandwiched in there, and the, it ends up having like vocals at the very. I don't know. It's just. Yeah, it's a wacky second set. fact that it was played in the university's cafeteria too yeah i love a show like that like uh i can't remember what dick's picks it is but it's played in an old bowling alley and you're like this just has that vibe to it king's beach bowl in 1969 you can picture oh, yeah. like a tiny little arena where they can basically like you know throw a baseball and hit the people in the back of the room it just gives it a whole different vibe whole different dna yeah that's a good release i like that one yeah that is a solid one so 1972 one drummer dead you know you're a percussionist you can probably it's less less sneakery that's for sure um you got Pigpen, you have donna and keith how do you feel about keith as a keyboardist where does he kind of rank among the dead keyboardists for you this is where it gets a little tough to to separate the player themselves from the era that they were in because i know a lot of uh, people will say like oh te- for pure technical chops brent takes the cake and i wouldn't necessarily disagree but i definitely like keith era dead the best which partially has more to do with what the other guys like the the state that they were in and the 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 typical set list in that period and all sorts of other stuff um but i think he's a great player and he as you guys mentioned in the uh the episode about the 78 shows even though he kind of trailed off a little bit at the very end of his time with them at this point, he's really on fire on this tour. And I love how it's a crossroads between he and pig, the, uh, the piano and organ sound is really nice. Kind of like what Dylan had going on, on uh, blonde on blonde. Yeah, it is cool. I like the way that pig pen it's, um, it's very just complimentary. He's not really trying to overpower with the organ throughout this tour. He's just finding little gaps to fill in kind of cool little fills and little, I don't know, just kind of these little ornate pieces that he does on the organ. And he picks his places pretty well because he's not doing it, at least not that you can really hear on every song. Like, you know, there are other songs where he switches to some hand percussion and he's playing Guru shaker or something like that or harmonica and so i i really i agree i really like what he's doing do you when you listen to the tour i'm you're more familiar with the whole tour than we are is is it noticeable do you think by the end that he's starting to feel worse and that his health is you know starting to fade 
Yeah, I do think so. I would say Rotterdam is the the dividing line where after that you start to see a bit of a trail off. I would say that's his last great show. The first two shows after Rotterdam, Lille and Luxembourg don't have good loving. And then it comes back in Munich, but pretty short. And then um, the second last night, he doesn't rap at all and it takes much more of a jazzy turn. And then uh, the last night, he actually, the last night of the tour, he's pretty good, but there isn't like a longer pig band song, like a good loving. He, uh, he does well on the stranger and a few like that, but yeah, I, I would notice, I would say I notice after Rotterdam starts to, to dip and there's, there's kind of a dip in general. I, to me, Rotterdam is the best show of the tour. And then I always feel bad because I, every year I listen to Leal right after Rotterdam and it's always like the least enjoyable listen for me just because of the degree of the drop-off. That makes sense. So you, you don't, you wouldn't put either of the London shows at the end of the tour. Um, I know people love both of those shows and they've released parts of them a number of times over the years. You wouldn't put either of those kind of in that same tier as Rotterdam, or do you think maybe one of them is, but not to the same level as Rotterdam? Uh, no, I would have uh, the last two nights of, at the Lyceum uh, at the bottom of the top 10. Okay, so the, both behind the second night at Wembley. Yeah, and I actually like the 25th better than the 26th because like the 26th would be a bit higher. My problem with it is the other one is kind of just the glue between Truck and Morning Dew Sing Me Back Home, all three of which are all-time great versions but on that one the other one's just kind of like the connective tissue it doesn't really establish itself as a an epic on its own i don't think whereas there are other well the the three-parter from the first night in paris would be the opposite where it's also stitching together truck and me and bobby mcgee warfrat but it's epic in its own right as well well, I don't want to step too much more on your rankings because if our audience wants to hear them in their entirety, at least as of two years ago, and they may have changed in the time since then, but go listen to episode two of Rock Talk with Dr. Cropper. You can hear what Zach's thoughts are on every show of the tour. You know, I, I like that you kind of call out high moments and also low moments or in certain ones, like reasons why, okay, well, this one's shorter because it was for a TV broadcast. And so, you know, it's hard to really criticize it for that, but it's toward the bottom or at the bottom as a result. Dave, I've been hogging all the questions. I'm sorry for that. What do you have? No, you're good. You made a point about, I think it was the Hamburg show that it's not one of your, not one of your favorite shows, but that wasn't a testament to it being a bad show. It was a testament to how high up all the other shows were. Is 72 dead? Like, do you consider that your favorite, the objective peak, your subjective peak? Yeah, it's number one for me. I, I don't, I don't want to get too cocky and say that's objectively the best. As far as why I like it the best, I would say it's not number one by as much as it was before. But that's not that seventy two has slipped in my eyes at all. It's more so that I've gained a better appreciation for other years. To me, it's the Goldilocks year. I think it's significantly more polished than what came before, but it still has some of that primal energy. Uh, kind of the last vestiges of it really um yeah i don't think there's any of that in 73 really or 74 and then certainly after the hiatus there 
it's not primal like it's still energetic but it's not the same as whereas in 72 you still get on this tour some like caution from the second night at Wembley that is primal dead with the 72 to 74 tightness and then also a great balance of like tight short songs and long open jams set list wise um you've got those what i would call the second wave americana songs like after working man's dead american beauty but the you know tennessee jed sugary jack straw that whole batch you've got them coming into their own but you also have 30 plus minutes of dark star and the other one every night dark star or the other one bickershaw is the only one with both um and then there are a few later in the year that don't have either but by that point playing in the band has really come into its own which is another factor i think 72 is the best year for playing they're all uh, wild and consistently energetic from start to finish um whether it's these short ones in europe which um you know i know you guys are sports fans you'll hear in uh football circles when they're talking about a wide receiver they, they might say oh he can get open in a phone booth and to me the year plans can get far out in a phone booth like they're only 10 minutes but like snap your fingers when the verses are done and you're already like several light years away uh, and then they come back to earth just as quickly it's really impressive i think jazz becomes more prominent in 72 than it was before but it's still kind of balanced with a bit of blues and r&b from 71 and prior and a big factor of that is big ben obviously that tip that tapers off a bit once he's gone um that's the and that's why i like europe the best within 72 is that big ben's still there uh, and what that the effect that that has on the set list having really good versions of good love and every night a few love lights caution some good mr charlie's um throughout europe 72 there's some other ones where he shines too but i want to go back to playing in the band because i completely agree with you i think that 72 is a peak um for playing and it's cool too like the i love the comparison to a, a wide receiver getting open in a phone booth the they also at least the first night uh, is the one i'm most familiar with right now just because i've been listening to it a lot uh in preparing for our show about that one they go from like starting the song to tiger in like four seconds. Yeah. There is no time off at all. They just like hit their stride immediately. And then they keep it at that energy throughout. And it's really just tremendous to hear how quickly they can get into it. And then just what a powerhouse that song is throughout this tour. Yeah, and so smooth too. It doesn't sound obvious. Like, oh, now they're starting the wild jam. And the the other factor I think is that even as wild and complex as the jams are in '72, especially Europe, the actual song part of each song is really tight and well sung. You're not getting very many lyrical flubs. Everybody's voice is in good shape. 
Yeah, I agree. In- including Pigpen, at least, uh, at, you know, at the beginning, especially, um, but also Donna, I mean, she's not doing a lot. She's only been in the band for a few weeks, literally by the beginning of the tour, but, um, she doesn't sound bad on this tour. What, what's your thought on Donna overall? Uh, I think she gets too much hate. I'm not known as like a, a vocal critic. Um, I take a lot of heat actually for being too forgiving of a plant in later years like in the Zeppelin community. <laughs> I love 75 and that's not like one of his better years, but yeah, I've, I don't know why I've always just kind of viewed good vocals as like icing on the cake or more so than a prerequisite. Yeah. But yeah, I think Donna is good. Obviously, I think you guys drew attention to her having like monitor issues where she could never hear herself very well in the for most of the 70s, or at least the earlier part. And then when she uh, in 73, when she gets a few more chances to shine, like with some lead vocals, like, uh, like you ain't woman enough. I always enjoy those. Yeah, I agree. I, I think that um, it kind of depends on the the like recording quality too. She sounds best on Betty boards when you can like really hear what she's doing. Yeah. But I, I like her on Europe 72. She's not doing a ton. I mean, she's pretty, pretty evident on playing in the band, obviously, but um, she even like sugar mag in the beginning of the tour, she has not really found what she's doing in that. She's not involved in the sunshine daydream coda at all. And so it's kind of cool to see her evolve her role evolve as the tour goes on. Mm-hmm. Well, and she is really good on Sing Me Back Home, especially the uh, the second night in Paris. That's probably my favorite version of it. Um, she yeah, sings really well on that one. And oddly enough, I heard her tell a story in some interview that she, uh, so they, Owsley sent them with like their supply for the tour, even though he was in prison still. He got out in the summer and uh, they, so they kind of ran out by uh by the time they got to the halfway point in paris and also it was like losing its potency as the as they were going through april so she said that that she was up to like taking whatever it was two or three tabs for a show by the time they were getting towards the end of april because they were losing their potency and then i guess unbeknownst to her he sent like an emissary to replenish their supply in Paris and she took her like adjusted dose of the fresh stuff. So oh. she ended up like under Keith's piano during Dark Star at <laughs> that second Paris show. But then she like turns in a career performance in Sing Me Back Home a few songs later. The resilience of this band. I mean, you yeah. never know what you're gonna get. <laughs> Yeah, she uh, she earned her stripes and uh, <laughs> proved yeah. she could hang with the big boys. Yeah, I think so. So uh, speaking of, uh, we were just talking a couple minutes ago about that second show at Wembley. When I talked to you on when we were first messaging back and forth about the fact that we were going to talk about that show, you told me that you thought that it was within the Mount Rushmore of pocket-sized dead shows 
from 72. So shorter than three hour long shows. You identified that one, Veneta, which hard to argue about that one. Um, the 1018 show, which I believe is the one that was on Listen to the River, the box that came out last year. And then Wichita from uh, November of that year. I, so I re-listened to all of those shows after you said that, because I was like, I got to hear like the difference, the evolution from April, then you get, what is it? Uh, August for Veneta or yeah. Right. August, August 2nd. Yeah. August. Um, and then 27th, 27th. So then you go, go from there to October and then just a little bit less than a month later to Wichita. And the set lists are completely different. First of all, which is interesting. The Wichita uh, set list is extremely unique but I had never heard that show before and I really dug it, but what, so what, what stands out about those four shows to you compared to their other shorter shows that they played throughout the year, but what, what makes those ones stand out? Is there like a connective tissue at all to those four? Well, so they're, yeah, they all have crackling energy from start to finish that they, that helps them punch above their weight, if you will, and compete with shows that are half an hour, an hour longer. Um, they're all really well so there's some i would say st louis is the most chaotic of the three um it has a few more loose spots but also arguably the 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 most extravagant jam suite with that playing dark star morning dew playing yeah monster Um, yeah that that one is just like sounds like they're ripping all of the songs apart at the seams and then the the london one is probably the i would say it and wichita are more like you know polished and professional as far as um being really tight wichita doesn't really have a long jam the other one's only 19 minutes but um again punches above its weight for only being 19 minutes and interesting contrast actually to the luxembourg other one from this tour which is also 19 minutes but i would not put in the same class as the wichita one um and then this london show actually has a pretty sweet jam jam suite of its own with uh i call this dark star coke star because it's kind of uncharacteristically energetic and like driving the whole way um doesn't really have any wandering space uh, but that second half is really melodic with the the proto mind left body jam and that uh really slick transition into sugar mags and then veneta is pretty unique for being so short but having so many longer jams in it like it's under three hours but dark star takes up 32 and then playing takes up another like you're at the what 50 minutes there plus a 13 minute bird song i was about to say the bird song pretty much right off the bat you're into big jams yeah. I mean, so it's interesting. Coke star. That's <laughs> very, I, first of all, I like that. But second of all, what's interesting to me is Kreutzmann said that he was off Coke for this entire tour. So I wonder if that was like maybe Phil or Jerry that was kind of picking up the pace and really like charging ahead with it that second night. Uh, Cause apparently it wasn't Kreutzmann who is who you'd expect to kind of drive it. But something that you said in one of your episodes, I thought was a really kind of as someone, I play drums a little bit. I started playing in October, so I'm very new to it. But one thing that you said was, Bill keeps good time, but if you're going to play at like the level that the dead did, every musician in the band needs to keep their own time or else they're not going to be able to have the type of musical conversation that they can if if they aren't keeping track on in their own right. 
I, I thought that was a, a kind of a smart just thing to note. And as someone who's not a musician, it was, I mean, just kind of, I guess, surprising to me a little bit because I, I would think of it as like a drummer really keeping the time for the whole band. But yeah, I thought that was, I thought that was cool. Well, that, that, yeah, that's what you always hear. And it's true, but it's a, it's a kind of a noose around your neck creativity wise. And the, if you want to be doing nebulous jams like this, uh, if you're thinking about, okay, I have to be dropping mile markers consistently. And if I do something too crazy, I don't know if the bassist or whoever it is, if that's going to throw him off. And if you have that hesitation in your head that you have an idea and you're like, I don't know if I can afford to try it because they'll get lost, then you can't do the sort of stuff that the dead do. So he definitely plays with complete confidence that they're keeping their own time and aren't like having to listen to him. Dave, do you have uh, more questions? I've got more, but I, again, don't want to keep, you know, hogging the space. <laughs> Just to talk about one drummer dead for a little bit. That also part of why I mean you talked about seventy two is your favorite. Is is it because the drumming stands out? I mean we we focus on the drumming a lot in our episodes because we you know we dissect every little bit. But is that something that really weighs in favor of it? Definitely, I think in seventy one, he uh, well, they're all kind of adjusting to to Mickey's departure, and so they scale it back to more the period where they were the most straightforward rock and blues type outfit uh spring summer 71 and then starts to get a bit more out there again in the fall with keith i actually listened to a fair bit of fall 71 this past fall for the 50th anniversaries and was pleasantly surprised i'd kind of written it off before why do i need to listen to pre-europe 72 and i can just listen to europe 72 but it was cool to to hear the integration of Keith and um, a few of the songs start even more energetic than like Tennessee Jed in those fall versions is really snappy, like a, a coil springing back and forth. And then it's cooled off a little bit, even by this point and would continue to a bit, but yeah, I think Bill's really creative in 72 and uh, making great use of the whole kit which is something that I notice a bit of a decline of in 73. And then it comes back in 74. And I, that's an interesting way. I want to pause you there real quick. So okay. is it with, is he doing less on the symbols, less on the toms? Is it other like kind of auxiliary pieces? Like, I don't really think he played much with like a cowbell during this time period or anything like that. What, what is it that he's making more use of uh, in 72? The toms. Yeah. Yeah, I noticed less a bit less toms in uh it was just I noticed it on the fall 73 shows that I listened to uh a few months ago. And then it comes back in 74. So I don't know if it was like and I mentioned this in one of the recent Zeppelin episodes, I noticed a similar thing with Bonham where 72 is a bit of a trough um in that respect, like creativity wise compared to 71 and 73 but it's also a period where the the set list was getting an influx of houses of the holy material and they were sort of taking their their jamming to the next level as a collective so i wonder if that's kind of where bill was at in 73 like they were getting really jazzy and yeah uh going to another level in that sense so he 
scales it back a bit to make sure everybody's with them. Like what we were just saying about not going too crazy to throw people off. And then not that I think 73 dead would have gotten thrown off, or maybe he just felt that it would have disrupted the, the chill vibes. I don't know. That's really interesting. Yeah. I, I think that um, to me, when I listen to 72, well, really any of 72, but especially Europe 72 and then what comes after and 73 and 74, that jazziness that's it really like, especially in 73 and 74, the jazziness on songs like eyes of the world, where it's just like, Whoa, this is like a jazz outfit now in a lot of ways that really stands out to me is how different it is. But I don't think that they're any worse for the wear in 72 without that. They've, they're starting to get like hints of it in, but I, I do agree with your overall uh, opinion about the DNA that Pigpen brings to the band. It keeps them more bluesy. And um, I, I do really like that. I, I love the way that it sounds. It's also kind of cool that they're bringing that to Europe, you know, as like an American band on tour in a different continent. They're bringing a lot of that kind of, you know, American music DNA, I guess. Um, so it's kind of interesting too. Oh, for sure. I was just thinking about that last night, actually um, listening to, so I, I did the first three ones from the Academy of Music in March, the warm-ups for this uh, the past few days and listening to Tennessee Jed last night. I remember one of you said that you like it and one of you doesn't. Was it Dave likes it and you don't? Yeah, and Alex could care less. <clears throat> okay, so I'm a big Jed fan as well. And the first one I remember hearing was the the second Wembley show. And it's so... Um, picturesque that first line cold iron shackles ball and chain listen to the whistle of the evening train it's like whoa like i'm there you can picture yourself like on a porch in the south somewhere like watching the sunset so yeah i think it's cool that they were playing that sort of stuff for the folks over there yeah that is it's cool too that when you listen to the audience tapes they get really into it too they love i mean the audience seems to love you know, songs like that or Brown Eyed Women, which they really start to find their stride with that song during this tour. And that's like, I mean, pure like Western American, just Americana, that song. Uh, and they, the, the crowd really starts to dig it, which is, I mean, yeah, it's pretty cool. I like when the, just made me think of the, the language barrier aspect of it too. Um, I love how, when they, uh, they do banter to like, try to see how much the people understand like in Dusseldorf when uh Phil I think it's Phil says I I say my dog has no nose and then there's like no nose how does he smell and it's blooming awful (laughs) probably like 10% of the crowd got it but that 10% uh, of the crowd was loving it though (laughs) yeah Uh, and then which is another factor uh that I forgot to mention of why uh i like 72 it's kind of the last hurrah for the the youthful innocent vibes i think and a lot of that comes down to the steep decline and banter between songs after 73 to the point that it becomes almost non-existent which is a shame because they were funny and it does a lot to not only add character to the show but to fill dead air when you're tuning or like that's one thing i noticed listening to all the spring 77 shows last year there were a few near the beginning where there was like a three minute tuning break while they were fixing something and nobody said a word i was like yeah this is way too much dead air 
Yeah, no, you're so right. That that listen to the river box set, it's pretty evident there too, because the 71 and 72 shows, they're chatting up with the crowd. And by 73, there's there's a little, but not really. Whereas especially at the beginning of this uh, tour, these two nights at Wembley, uh, Truck and Bob has that whole speech about this song going straight to the top of the charts in Turlock, California. And then night two, he's like, I cannot emphasize this enough. This song, Turlock, California, straight to the top of the charts. And you're right. It, it totally humanizes them and just makes it like more funny and goofy, lets you know that they're not taking themselves too seriously. And by the late 70s, especially the 80s, it's just gone. The only time, weirdly, that they're talking to the crowd, it seems in the 80s, is like Phil kind of chastising the crowd you know yeah there's one uh pittsburgh 88 which i only discovered through like heady and like this caught my eye in the comments i don't i have not yet (laughs) gone on an 88 binge but um the encore with broke down and jerry like sings the second verse first and then cuts it off and he's like yeah that was good huh you really liked that didn't you or something to that effect like okay we're gonna start it again That's an interesting connection between the second Wembley show in St. Louis. So Bob tells the yellow dog story at the second Wembley show. And then one of the St. Louis shows, I think it's the 18th actually, or don't quote me on that, but one of them, he, uh, he starts into it and the, while the others are tuning up and then they very obviously like, like crash it to a halt. Like, no, 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 you don't want to hear about that. And Bob's like, Oh, you guys are killjoys. <laughs> There's another one where he tells that story where as he's telling it, he's like, I guess you've got some time for me to tell a joke. And Jerry goes, please. No, you can hear him like pretty clearly in the background. <laughs> so yeah, I think that, that stuff is really funny. It's, oh, it's, well- Go ahead. Oh, sorry. There, there was, he told a different one that <laughs> I thought it was even funnier in that, like, off the wall, like, dad humor that Bob has uh, at one of the St. Louis shows that afterwards you could hear one of them say, like, oh, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, that's, that's too good. I love stuff like that. It really, again, just like totally makes, it adds charm to the shows, I would say. So, um, talked a lot about Europe 72. Are there any favorite? So you you said Rotterdam is your favorite show from this tour. And we talked about your favorite kind of pocket sized shows of 72. Mm -hmm. So with other years besides 1972, are there any years that stand out as like other ones that you really love or that you're particularly kind of loving right now? Well, obviously I just went through a lot of 69 for that episode and was really digging that. I would say 70 might be my second favorite year because I love the acoustic sets. Yeah. So good. I love those in 82. I think that they're just so great. Those acoustic sets. Mm -hmm. Also, well, 73, I've been getting more and more into the past couple of years, uh, 74 as well. Um, 71 i find is a great year for cherry picking even though it doesn't have uh in my opinion at least any like it's kind of short on all-time great individual shows but 
uh, like hard to handle. For example, if I'm, if I need like a great 10 minutes while I'm driving to get a pizza or something, I put on a 71 hard to handle and it's just right. I, it's probably the best year for, well, it would be between it and 72 for best year for good loving. The best versions from 71, I would put at the top, like uh, Princeton and the one on ladies and gentlemen from Fillmore East. 77 is my favorite of post hiatus so far, but I, as we've talked about, it's not without it's, it can be like smooth to a fault sometimes. And I've started to explore a bit around that. I really liked the December 9th, 81 Boulder show. That's Dave's picks 20. Uh, I listened to that for the anniversary in December and was really impressed with it. And uh, I did some 81 shows last spring as well that were pretty good. And of course, there's the, the sort of late career renaissance in 89, 90. Yeah, a lot of great shows then. 81 is an interesting year. Brent really has kind of found his stride with the group. He seems mm-hmm. very confident, noticeably more confident than 80, I think, um, in the shows I've heard from 81 with what he's doing uh, with the band, which is cool. And 81 is also... Jerry's voice hasn't like made that turn to that corner that it does later in the eighties. I like 84, pretty much any show that you hear Jerry's voice, you're going to have to like get used to it kind of, whereas 81, there are some nights where he still sounds fantastic. Um, that whole 80 run, uh, at radio city and, um, in San Fran playing the acoustic sets, his voice still sounds, I think really good. So, okay. What about, do you have a favorite Grateful Dead album, whether a live release or, well, actually both. What's your favorite studio album and what's your favorite live album, if you had to pick one? Uh, studio, American Beauty, with Working Man's Close Behind. Um, and live. It doesn't have to be your favorite. It could just be one that you really are enjoying right now, if that's easier. So we're talking ones that aren't part of box sets? like No, including box to... sets. Whatever, oh, okay. Yeah, whatever, whatever one you really digging a lot right now i would say europe volume 15 rotterdam is probably my favorite because the uh dick's picks volume four is a mix of feb 13th and feb 14th because i think february 13th 70 is my favorite show like slightly over my favorites of 72 because the vibes are just too perfect (laughs) there's just something magical about that show i don't know and the the night after is not that far behind, but yeah, because Dick's four is a mix of those two, I'll go with Rotterdam. Yeah, I agree. I I Dave, I'm curious. I've never asked you what your favorite dead studio albums are, but I agree with you. I think that American Beauty is just uh, pretty much a perfect album from beginning to end. And um, I I like Workman's Dead a lot. Obviously, we named our podcast after it. Um, but yeah. yeah, I mean, going from starting with box of rain. I, I remember the first time I heard that song. I think I, I guess a lot like you, I had the songs that were my entry point were China cat sunflower and Scarlet begonias. I heard both of those and was like, this is the grateful dead. I didn't know that they had songs like this. And so then I, I listened to American beauty. And I remember the first time I heard box of rain, I was like, this is them too. Like, this is a gorgeous song. And I didn't know that they had songs like this. And um, from there, I just have gone as far back back on the bus as I could be just I'm I made a home back there now (laughs) um but Dave what's your favorite studio album do you have one it's American Beauty yeah that makes sense the tie-in could be my favorite album I mean favorite song do you have a song that 
is like your no doubt favorite or are you kind of like us where i have a favorite grateful dead song but it's like you know this week the song that i liked the most was was this so you know are you vibing to a song right now or do you have like an all-time no kidding favorite i do it's dark star and part of that is uh I don't know if you guys are into personality psychology at all. Uh, I'm kind of into the Myers-Briggs thing in my spare time. And uh, so as an INTJ, my dominant function is introverted intuition, which is kind of a, it's like the the most difficult of the cognitive functions to understand because it works kind of subconsciously. So it can be uh, kind of hard to get into since the opposite of it is extroverted sensing so any sensory stimulation can like you know you could be almost at an insight and then the doorbell rings and it's gone forever kind of thing so i find dark star the most reliable thing for helping me to to get into that when i really need to just drift off in my mind and let it percolate about something the intro riff kind of and the first like few minutes of thematic jamming kind of like suck you in and then launch you off and then you can get your mind wandering. And then one that I've been, I always liked, but have been really into lately uh, is the 11, just because I've been doing all that 69. 11 eights, such a fun time signature to, well, to listen to and to play in. If I had to, for some, for some reason, they put me in charge of picking the one Grateful Dead song that would like live in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I would pick Dark Star just because I feel like Dave, you said this on one of our episodes. It's like their thesis as a band almost. You know, it's it just makes sense. But for me, Uncle John's band, I I just adore that song. It just it works. <laughs> and um, yeah, but that that's interesting. The the connection to your uh personality type, the IN, you said INFJ, right? INTJ. INTJ. Um, but that's that's a really, really interesting and kind of I don't know, thoughtful way of thinking about that. That's very, very cool. Um, but but I, I I agree with that, David. But it kind of being their thesis, they I like to think what's the the one song in a band's catalog that only they could have thought of or pulled off. Keith Richards has said that in his opinion, it's Midnight Rambler for the Stones. He thinks only he and Mick would have thought to turn the blues into an opera like that. I think Dark Star would definitely be a strong candidate for like the one song that only the dead, the dead would have thought of. What do you think for Zeppelin? I feel like maybe cashmere. I can't picture another band playing that song. Yeah, that would be a strong candidate. There are a lot. I mean, obviously stairway would be in the running. Yeah. Because not very few can pull off each aspect of the spectrum that it covers yeah like there there are other bands who could do the acoustic part as well there are others who could do the electric part as well but to to be able to do all of it that well uh, yeah that's true there are so many of their songs where i'm like i cannot pick like even like fool in the rain other bands might be able to but the bonham i mean it's i guess it's kind of pretty shuffle ish what he's doing in some ways, but I don't know. I can't picture other drummers really kind of crushing it the way he does in not just like the part where he really explodes, but the after part where it sounds like he is just beating the hell out of his drum set. Yeah. Um, That's actually the, the song that got me really into Zeppelin 
because I had uh, one of your earlier questions was my uh, sort of background as a music fan and my dad would definitely be the the biggest influence in that regard um, we used to listen to the doors a lot in the car and they were my first favorite band light my fire is still actually my favorite song uh, partly because of the nostalgia but uh, I don't really remember getting into Zeppelin from him although when I got my first iPod my neighbor like synced it with stuff that was in his library he's a he's about your age and he was uh he was actually he played sax in my band when we were together and uh he put eight zeppelin songs on like kind of usual suspects and i liked them but then kind of had forgotten about them <laughs> for a couple of years and then in grade 10 i was like one day in the winter i was putting laundry away listening to the radio and fool in the rain came on and i like stopped what i was doing and sat there like i have to find out who that was <laughs> and then it said led zeppelin i was like oh yeah those guys <laughs> and then it's all downhill from there <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense that song rules i love that song that, yeah. that's a song that people who maybe know like the led zeppelin hits because you're not going to hear that song on classic rock radio generally you're going to hear rock and roll, immigrant song, stairway. Um, you know, there's some others, but yeah, I like to play that song for people who think that they, they're like, yeah, I know it's up on they're fine. I'm like, all right, have you heard this? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's on, sorry. It's on the list of like more accessible Zep songs for people with a bit softer taste. Like yeah. Diamaka down by the seaside, which is a great one. Everyone forgets about. Yeah. I mean, there, there are so many. I feel like we could have a whole different episode about Led Zeppelin because Dave and I are both huge fans. Not as much as the dead, obviously, given that we're dedicating this much of our time mm-hmm. um, to them. But yeah. Are there shows that you think would be a good one for us to talk about on our show, either because you think it's great, you think it's from an interesting era that deserves some increased attention, anything like that, that kind of jumps out at you? Uh, yeah, I put down a couple. I I did ones that I hadn't included on the the Mount Rushmore, the February twenty second sixty nine at the Dream Bowl, five days before the the Fillmore West run, a great dark star at that show, fitting for the the name of the venue. It is kind of dreamy, and a really great seventeen minute version of the Eleven. June 24th, 1970 at the Capitol in Port Chester, the late show. It's an audience tape, but a really good one. And I think that show probably more than any other, if I had to uh, show somebody what the, when a show has that lysergic buzz, like what, what I mean when I say that, I would put that show on. They open with not fade away and you can, it's just like dripping with it from the start. And it has a dark star with addicts and sugar mags in the middle. A pretty like early version of mags that sounds a bit more similar to the, well, no, I wouldn't say that. Uh, I was going to say it's a little more similar to the studio version. It's, it's pretty bouncy, but it's cool. 
and they encore with swing low sweet chariot acoustic which is very nice september 24th 72 waterbury connecticut which would be a good choice for you um three days after the the awesome show at the spectrum it's a little shorter but it uh is excellent has a really good bird song and an awesome dark star that goes into china cat yeah not an ordinary pairing that's that's pretty cool though no and then uh october 28th 72 in cleveland was one of my favorite from the fall partially set list wise uh it was a dark star night but more importantly they do addicts of my life uh, they did it twice in fall 72 which is the only time between 1970 and 1989 uh so it's got that Candyman and box of rain wow so having a 72 show with all three of those and dark star makes it pretty special yeah with the american beauty special and that's also phil's voice still sounded okay so you got that good yeah. harmony on uh addicts and and candy man nice and actually actually uh the 73 show in Cleveland too, December 6th. That one is great. The second longest dark star behind only Rotterdam here in Europe 72. And I would say the closest they got to sea stones within an actual song. It's uh, it's really far out. Like it's kind of inside out. They start out in space work their way back to the verse and then just go off again. Okay. Are you, so one of the shows that you mentioned, you just gave us five excellent ones, which we will talk about. I had one more. Okay. Give, let it oh, lay it on. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, actually two, I, I told you how Tuscaloosa 77 is my favorite of yep. the year and probably my favorite post hiatus so far. I think it has the best Scarlet Fire and Terrapin. I listened to that after okay. you said, you said that you were like the Scarlet Fire from Tuscaloosa or from that date in 77. Yeah. yeah I mean, I would tell anyone who's listening to this show, if you have listened to the Cornell Scarlet Fire and thought like, man, that is like peak Scarlet Fire, uh, listen to Tuscaloosa and <laughs> see if it changes your mind because there is, I mean, that is something special, that version. Those duck quacks that Jerry does <laughs> on the transition with the wah. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Um, <laughs> but I, the one I was going to say is June 4th, 77 at the Forum in LA which is cool to it's an audience tape just it's the one show between the end of the east coast tour in hartford and the three nights at winterland yep um obviously the forum is a venue that has a lot of history in the zeppelin world and they were like known to play pretty well there usually but the dead didn't usually play there and there's kind of this notion that they that la wasn't a hot spot for them the way san fran and new york and other places were so but i think uh, it has one of the longer set lists of 77 and i think if it were aboard it would have more attention okay cool yeah i've heard uh some of those winterland shows but I've, I've never heard that one before mickey had the car crash and they had to take some time off before going back for english town but yeah we'll have to check that one out did you have one more or was it tuscaloosa and that one were the last two those were the two uh, okay. well i guess i could say july 13th 84 in Berkeley, Ooh. since you said you like 84, it has Scarlet Touch Fire. Oh, I'm, I know that show. Yeah. Okay. And the Dark that, Star that, Encore. Yeah. 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 Okay. That's a yeah. really cool yeah. show. Um, yeah. The Scarlet Touch Fire. The first time you hear it, you're like, what? Talk about Coke. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, uh, very true. Um, the question I was going to ask you is you, you, one of the shows you mentioned was uh, 92472 from Philly. Um, Waterbury. Oh, from Waterbury. I'm sorry. Um, do, are you familiar with the Baltimore show from that month? Mm-hmm. Th- that show is, I mean, what do, what do you think about that one? Excellent. Uh, one of the best other ones of all time. Uh, pretty nasty. Uh, I, I, somebody called it evil in the heady comments. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I could guess. it's like around 40 minutes. So one of the longer ones too. Uh, I love the uncle John's band yeah. that they close it out with at that Baltimore show. So um, good. I think yeah. the, the one in Philly on the 21st, like the, sh- the full show in Philly on the 21st is a bit better, but uh, Baltimore is excellent too. Nice. Yeah. That, I, I- I went down a deep rabbit hole on fall 72 last year when that box set came out. Cause so I was okay, like, yeah. I've just been sleeping on this. I I've spent so much time listening to Europe 72 and not fall 72. And then I realized like, just because Pigpen's not there, got to check it out. It's, I mean, that's a great, a great time for them too. Yeah. It, it really, it, it, it's every bit as good. I think it, it, well, okay. Almost. And in some ways it's better. Here's where it, I've been trying to wrap my head around fall versus Europe. And initially I thought, well, Europe wins because of set list because you've got good loving and love, light and caution and the pig pen stuff, mm-hmm. but fall has bird song and they bring in some stuff like box of rain and candy man and the two versions of addicts. And it falls also a bit more of their typical like adventurousness from night to night mm-hmm. Europe is a bit more similar to what we've said about spring 77, actually about the set list being a bit more predictable. Yeah. But the trade-off to that is it flows really well because they, some thoughts gone into like, okay, this one really works as an opener and it really works closing the first set with Casey Jones and stuff like that. But you do get some wild combos in the fall as a result of the adventurousness like that dark star into China cat, the second night at the Hollywood Palladium, September 10th, has Dark Star with David Crosby into Jackstra. So that's another fun sequence. Um, I'm writing that down. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, I think the main difference, uh, um, as maddening as it is, because people might not, uh, I don't know, there, might, there can be resistance to... Um, such intangible factors but i really think it is just the vibes that distinguish europe there's just a certain magic to it that i can't put my finger on and i think i know i'm sure the the recording quality helps but i've listened to like the rotterdam one more saturday night on the soundboard because it was left out of the box for some reason and it still has that same like sparkle to it yeah and i don't it's there's a similar phenomenon with zeppelin in japan 71 it just has a different sparkle to it i don't know if it's that in both cases they were exploring this foreign land that they had been excited to go to for a while um and those sort of like vibes of the band themselves being on vacation bleed into the shows um I know in one of the dead cast episodes when they had Sam Cutler on, he said that Jerry especially had been really keen to play somewhere where they didn't speak English so that the music would have to be so good that they could win people, people over, even if they didn't understand a single lyric. 
so that could be part of it and obviously that might have been a factor for zeppelin in japan no that's really interesting i think that i think that you're onto something there and i i mean i don't know people can disagree about the whole vibe factor but honestly so much of what we like and dislike about music kind of comes down to that we we can't you know break down exactly why we like and dislike things uh to a precise you know pin there's a great book by chuck klosterman where he kind of examines this phenomenon it's called I wear the black hat for anyone who wants to read it. There's a whole essay about Taylor Swift and how everyone had made up their mind about her by her second album. And people were either entrenched in loving her or hating her pretty much. And he was like, the reality is people just, her music made people feel, some people feel some way and other people feel a different way. And you can't tell me that you can explain exactly why that is, but it's really, it just is what it is. And so I, I I think you're right about the vibes. Okay. Well, you want to talk about that for a second and then remind me to, mentioned to go over my little theory about the vibes but okay um so i'm a taylor swift fan i've i've seen her three times in concert and um i was initially on the the hater side of the fence more so in a dismissive way because um she sort of hit a big when i was in middle school and there were a few girls in my class who were like diehard into her i didn't like country at all at that time and I still don't really like contemporary country, but um, but the dead have given me an appreciation for old school country, actually. Mm-hmm. So anyhow, the girls who were really into her were also like your stereotypical horse girl. So I just, <laughs> I just thought I wrote Taylor off. I was like, oh, that's horse girl music. And then um, <laughs> that's some I think like in grade nine or when You Belong With Me, the music video came out. I was like, Oh, this is actually really good. Crap. <laughs> Don't tell anybody I'm listening to this. But man, this and then uh, I liked mine as well. And then I got really into her in August, like 2013. I bought the the four albums up to that point. But but I agree, it's kind of like a polarizing thing with her. I was just talking about this with someone yesterday. How there isn't really a place for an intelligent discussion about her online the way there is for other artists. It's either haters just dismissing her or like over the top like fangirling that is not really a educated discussion either yeah that's fair well if you whether you prefer books or audiobooks i could i highly recommend that book by chuck Klosterman. it's really interesting it's all really about criticism and how we how we like and dislike things, write things off versus accept them. So, so it's interesting, but let's go back to the vibes because you said that you had one more point about that. Oh, okay. So uh, sort of related to what Jim from Maryland was saying about the, the supermodel ex-girlfriend thing. <laughs> so if you think of shows like women uh, or, or, or men. Yeah. So the pure technical performance would be like physical appearance and then the set list would be like um, compatibility stuff like common interests and that sort of thing okay and then the vibes would be like connection which is the you know the hardest spark yeah the hardest thing to explain and you can't like create it or it's just and you know that's 10 of us could listen to the same show and one of us like, oh, these vibes are amazing because one little comment between songs like makes you think of some anecdote from 10 years ago. And you're like, oh, I love this show for that. And <laughs> everybody else is like, dude, 
man i love that yeah thinking about shows like a romantic connection and breaking it down that way that makes that makes a lot of sense i think uh i think you're onto something there that's a good theory uh dave any any last questions uh for zach before we let him go no no so much for joining and we sincerely appreciate it yeah seriously it's been an absolute blast talking with you i feel like we could talk for uh a lot longer so maybe maybe you'll come back sometime to talk about a, a show we you've given us a lot of good ones so um maybe uh when we talk about one of those great shows from from the early 70s or maybe even from 84 you'll come back on and, and break it down with us i would i would love to thank you so much for having me and i and that would be good too to to dig down in a bit more detail i feel bad like we kind of beat it around the bush a little today <laughs> and uh All didn't good. get into the nitty-gritty but well, oh. I'll save that for next time though. Um, okay. we'll make sure that we'll make sure that when we invite you back, it won't be for a live release because, uh, we know as our audience should, when there's a new dead live release, Zach's going to be talking about it on rock talk with Dr. Cropper, follow him on Twitter, uh, Instagram. You have a pretty good, pretty active presence. Um, and so yeah, go, go give Zach a follow and on, um, I believe Apple music, there's office hours with Dr. Cropper, which is, uh, kind of a premium service. Do you want to kind of give a little plug for that before you go? Sure. Uh, yeah. Apple podcasts. There's the uh, subscription uh, premium show. Dr. Cropper's office hour. It's four ninety nine American per month and you get a weekly bonus episode and uh, you can cut to the front of the line. If you have a topic request over there right now, I've been doing a Beatles versus Stones series. I did a generic episode about it. And then as I was talking in that one, I said, you know, I think if you look at their five album peaks, they're actually not as as big of a gap as you know people think and then after i thought well i shouldn't just like say it and say take my word for it i should actually do the exercise myself and explain it so that i made a series out of it and i'm going one at a time so i did like rubber soul versus beggar's banquet and so on um so that's been fun also um one of your questions was that uh, I ranked the first Wembley show second last in episode two. Is that yep. still accurate? No, it is not. Uh, wow. <laughs> I'm so, I, I didn't realize I had it that low. Uh, so that's from my listening two years ago. Last year, I would definitely say it jumped up a bit more. Um, still, because the whole tour is so good, it's, it has a bit of a ceiling. I don't think it would be cutting into the top like 14 or 15 yeah. but i don't think it would be 21st yeah that makes sense the first set lags behind the second set especially with that show it seems like they're really kind of finding their footing in the first set and then the second set with that monster jam from like truck in the other one el paso back to um other one and Warfrat, they kind of find their stride a little bit i think yeah it could be a i mean not that they were likely nervous very often at this point in their career but it's a big tour in a place they haven't played before yeah i used the analogy actually in my uh in the fillmore west 69 episode last week when i threw discus in track i never really had the spin down so i would always do a standing throw first to make sure that i like got a decent one in without faulting <laughs> and then if i liked where i was in the standings then i would give it a go with the spin so maybe you could think of the first set like that like standing throw just, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's good. that is that makes sense all right, Zach. Well, thank you so much again uh, for chatting with us. Uh, we will keep listening to your show and I uh, hope to talk to you uh, sometime soon. Thanks again for having me and I will keep listening to yours and have to have you guys over on mine as well. Right on. Hey. Yeah, we'd love it. Yeah.
Okay, so that was our interview with Zach Cropper. Dave, I thought a pretty fun conversation. Zach stayed with us. He was very generous with his time. We we talked for a long while. I mean, I, I had a really good time talking with him. What what are some of your takeaways? He's a great music mind. I mean, he can rattle off stats left and right about the dead, Zeppelin. If you listen to his show, he's all over from Pink Floyd to The Doors to Taylor Swift. Like, he covers it all. He's a really, really cool dude. And he gave us some good show recs at the end. So we've done a Jim and Marilyn pick series. We might have to do a a Dr. Cropper pick series here coming up soon. I like it. I think you're right. We should. He did give us a lot of really good ones. You can tell based on the recommendations that Zach's kind of area of expertise is early 70s dead. That's his bailiwick. So I'm glad that we got to have him on to talk about Europe 72. I think that he really, he, he added to my appreciation of the tour and to my knowledge of a lot of what is happening on this tour. You can tell that he's very familiar with it. And so it was cool to get him on for that. What I thought was the coolest was he admitted he had not, it's not like he, his parents were playing the Grateful Dead, you know, and he was listening since he was six years old and remembering that, you know, like he, I'm not gonna say he got on late, he got on earlier than you and I did, but he got into them, you know, late in, Sorry, I got a whiny dog here. Hey, you're okay. I'm not going to cut that out because in our last days between, you mentioned that you just got a new puppy. So there you go. That's Molly, her introduction on the mic. But he he's so knowledgeable for a 27-year-old who hasn't been doing this his whole life. Yeah. like He has so much breadth and depth with them. I agree. It's interesting. What you were saying about him rattling off stats and figures and stuff, it reminds me of another great Canadian deadhead, Dave Lemieux. When you hear him talk about the Grateful Dead, he does that same thing where it's like, oh, and then uh, it's not quite as you know typical a set as you know this night. Um, Zach has that same sort of kind of not photographic memory, but just a, a good memory and a good, you know, you can tell he's very sharp and was just ready to go with those those things. Like a dedographic memory, like he's all <laughs> over it, left to right. Yeah, absolutely. So. You know, again, for us, fantastic guest. So happy that we got to talk with him. And thank you to Zach for uh, generously spending some of his time with us. Thank you to the listeners for generously spending so much of your time with us. I know that it's not always easy to carve out time to listen to other people talking, but we're grateful that you have. If you want to engage with us more, you can, as always, reach us on Twitter at Working Man's Pod, on Instagram at Working Man's underscore pod, or email us at workingmanspod at gmail.com and on that note we will bid you good night That's it, that's it. You got it.